Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. Every June, a great many Canadians gather around their television sets to watch the final playoff series of the National Hockey League. In short, they'll say they're watching the Stanley Cup Finals. That cup has a long history. It is, in fact, the oldest existing trophy to be awarded to a professional sports franchise and may well be one of the oldest trophies in professional sports on the planet. But what about the man who actually donated? Who was this Stanley? Jordan Goldstein, a young historian at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario, has just written a book about the man and his cup. The book is entitled Canada's Holy Grail, Lord Stanley's Political Motivation to Donate the Stanley Cup, and it's published by the University of Toronto Press. We reached Dr. Goldstein at his office in Hillsburg, Ontario. Jordan, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much for having me, Patrice. It's a wonderful opportunity, so thank you. to yesterday for this episode. What happened on February 4th, 1889? This is a really fun date. Uh, there's a lot of really intriguing dates in the early hockey history, especially in Canada, but not many people know this date. And even if they do know the date, they certainly don't know the significance of it. This was the date that Lord Stanley and his family witnessed their very first ice hockey match when they spectated at the Montreal Winter Carnival. And this sparked a love affair, not just with Lord Stanley himself, but with his entire family. You see, Lord Stanley, serving as the sixth governor general of Canada, was just recently sent over from England uh, in the summer of 1888. So this was his first taste and experience of the winter, and in particular of the winter sports. Um, that, that, that were gracing Canada at that time. And he, his sons, his daughter, they fell head over heels with this fast, rugged sport. And over their next three years, three or four years in Canada, they actually um, affected its organization and its standardization to a larger degree than most people realize. And this sort of culminated when he donated the Stanley Cup, or what became known as the Stanley Cup, in March of 1892. Hmm. Now, apparently, the uh, the reporters said that the vice regal party was, and I quote, immensely delighted with it. Did they, did they have fights? <laughs> I don't know if that game had fight or fights or not, but certainly early hockey was was far more of a violent affair than even it is is now. Uh, the very first written account of hockey from 1875 in the city of Montreal talks about fisticuffs, and um, I believe uh, somebody broke a bench over somebody else's back or their head. So the very first re the very first recorded hockey matches, you know, existed in violence. So. So it's 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 probable that there was some chicanery and some 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 violence at the game, but that's not what impressed Stanley about it. It was more the fast-paced action and the dynamism and and sort of the the, the team play. Uh, hockey was a very different game at that time. It, it, it resembled almost like rugby on skates. There was no forward passing. You could only stick handle pass a pass past opponents. There were no 
there were goaltenders, but nobody was raising the puck. Uh, there was a, there was seven on the ice instead of six. So it was a bit of a different game, but certainly something that captured their imagination, the entire Stanley uh, family, because there was nothing like it uh, over over in England. Yeah. So let's talk about the cup itself. Um, what is this piece of jewelry? Can you? What was it that uh, Lord Stanley donated actually in March 1892? What is the object? It's a silver punch bowl that he purchased. It was purchased in England for 25 pounds of silver and then engraved uh, with the name Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup, right? That's the that's the name of the Stanley Cup. It, it, it became known as the Stanley Cup because he donated it, uh, but but its official name is the is the Dominion Hockey Challenge Cup. And the idea was that the hockey teams from across the Dominion of Canada would petition to uh, would petition a challenge in order to compete for and then own the cup. And this was um this was a very typical format for championships at this time period, the idea of a challenge cup. So there wasn't standardized leagues or playdowns or or playoffs. Um we had sort of sporadic organizations, so teams in central Canada, teams in the west, teams on the east, they didn't have a standard way to compete against each other. So Lord Stanley put two hand-picked trustees in charge of administering the cup. And what they did was they took on all of the requests from the various teams. Um, so you'd have teams writing in to these trustees. You know, we went, um, you know, 10 and 0 in our league and we beat this team and that team. Therefore, we deserve to play for the national championship of Canada. And sometimes you could get two or three of these mat matches a year, uh, depending on weather conditions and depending on on, on worthy uh, challenges. It's it's worth saying that the the hockey season in those days was was maybe what eight ten weeks. I mean, it was uh, January to mid March, right? Yeah, it, it, lucky if it was in December. I mean, hockey. The, the major three cities sort of where hockey was played initially, Montreal, Ottawa, and Kingston are pretty pretty cold in the winter. But yeah, you're looking at a at a variable season. It's not even standard in terms of how long it would be from year to year. So so teams would be playing playing different amounts of games. Uh, and this really lent itself to the Challenge Cup system uh, before we had standardized rinks, uh, refrigeration technology, uh, and the ability to, tr to travel much easier from coast to coast. The cup that's brandished by these bearded men uh, in June is not the actual cup that Stanley donated in 1892, is it? No, that's, uh, that's correct. There's actually three different Stanley Cups. Uh, the first one is held at the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto. Actually, it's at the archives at the MasterCard Center in, in Mississauga. They do not display it because it's so brittle that if it's exposed to light, it will crumble because it's a, it's silver. But the the teams that, that won the first cup didn't treat it with a lot of care. Um, one of the neat things about the Stanley Cup are kind of the, the initial stories. One team... Um, left the cup by accident at the photographer's office so the wife actually turned it into a flat into a flower pot one team uh they were on their way to a banquet in their car they got a flat so they took everything out and and they changed the flat and then they got back in the in the car but then they realized they left the cup uh freezing on the bank on the side of the road um so the cup's gone through 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 quite a bit so it's actually quite brittle and the original is never never actually sees the light of day the one that it's given out um 
in 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 the summertime or the late spring now uh yeah that is a is the third iteration so it's a replica of a replica of the original cup which which nobody touches and and no one sees and i I guess you've never had the punch in the bowl either unfortunately not no no (laughs) okay one day we'll have to do that. All right, this is not a this is not a podcast about the cup itself. It's about the man who donated the cup. So let's let's talk about uh, Lord Stanley of Preston. Who who is this man? He's a really intriguing character, actually. Um, he wouldn't you wouldn't think that he would be a political person, but he comes from a, a strong political family. His father, Edward Jeffrey Stanley, was the first three time prime minister of. Uh, of the United Kingdom. Uh, he founded the modern Conservative Party uh, as well, sort of the split uh, between uh, the Radicals and the Whigs um, in around the 1840s and 1850s. And he himself was um, was a conservative. But like his father, he was independent. So while he fit in with the Conservatives, he also incorporated a lot of liberal ideology at the time. And so he really is this intriguing political fellow. He's an aristocrat, and so he doesn't often talk about his political ideals. Uh, he merely serves, and he he performs his duties. Um, he served in Parliament for over 20 years and served in Cabinet a bunch of times. Uh, he was mostly drawn to military affairs, Um Unlike his father and his brother, he was educated at Sandhurst, not at uh, Oxford or Cambridge. And so he was very practical in his political uh, ideals. Uh, He served as the Secretary of War. He served as the Secretary of the Colonies. uh, and, And it's actually this post, the Secretary of the Colonies, which which prepared him for his role as Governor General. He served as the as the the secretary for the colonies between 1885 and 1886 and at this time there was a an ongoing imbroglio between Newfoundland the United States and Canada over certain fishing rights uh and he got this sense that the Canadians didn't really have much of a say and the view in Canada especially with foreign relations at the time was that Great Britain was kind of just sacrificing Canadian interests in order to play nice with the Americans which to some degree was 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 pretty true so he got to see that type of a relationship and then when he was sent to great uh, sorry when he was sent to Canada uh, as governor general in 1888 he was on the other side, right? No longer acting on behalf of the colonial government, uh, but acting on part of the Dominion government. He began to sense and feel the frustration uh, that Canadian subjects felt, especially with this intransigence from the home government uh, regarding negotiations with America. He's a conservative. He is a, a Tory. How does his experience as a colonial secretary change that? You're saying he learns about Canada? He starts to take a, a Canadian perspective on things? Yes, but but it, it doesn't have much to do with his ideology, except in the uh, advance of the empire. So if it's it's good to think about him as sort of a, uh, a fellow traveler of Sir John A. Macdonald. Uh, he and Macdonald actually had a very uh, strong personal friendship. Uh, and Lord Stanley, even though he wasn't supposed to publicly support uh, either the the, uh, the conservatives or at that time the liberals uh, led by Wilfrid Laurier, um, 
in his private correspondence, which is uh, detailed in the book, uh, there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them, strategizing, uh, talking about how to defeat the liberals, uh, and how to how to ensure that the conservatives are the ones who who lead Canada, because. At this time, Canada's national future is uncertain. Many people at the time thought that there were two destinies for Canada. If the Liberals and Wilfrid Laurier were elected in 1891 with their plank of unrestricted reciprocity uh, with the United States, that Canada would just become annexed right into the United States. I forget what number of state it would have been at that uh, they would have been at that time, um, but that was one idea. The other mainstream idea was that Canada would fold back into an enlarged British Empire, and this is the idea of imperial federation. That the dominions would form a a sort of um, a team with uh, England and the United Kingdom. Uh, to govern the empire. So Canada would be free at home domestically, but they would get an outsized uh, role in helping to manage the external affairs of the empire. There were not a lot of people that thought Canada as an independent country from the United States and Great Britain uh, would, would be the future. And so Lord Stanley exists in this intriguing moment in Canadian history, you know, 25 years or so after Confederation, uh, with this state of national uncertainty that sort of dominates uh, thinking, uh, basically on, in, in the intellectual circles and in the political circles. Now, your book is very clever in situating this gift of a, of a, of a cup, a punch bowl, in a political context. Tell me about the Canadian idea as it stood in the... Uh, 1890s, the early 1890s, particularly as it played itself out in the 1891 election. Ah, yes. The 1891 election is intriguing because it's this sort of pivot point. It's, uh, if, if people out there listening remember the very famous slogan, like the old flag, the old leader, this was a, um, pitting the sort of the two destinies of Canada against each other. Sir John A. Macdonald, the Conservatives, the national policy, tariffs, imperial preference, versus Wilfrid Laurier, unrestricted reciprocity, free trade, and more of a, a sentimental connection with the British Empire, and, and more of a commercial relationship with the United States. So Canada is teetering, and one of my good friends and fellow um, histor fellow Canadian historians, um, Dr. Graham Thompson, he's I, I I lean on his his work on on this quite a bit, uh, and he's a he's an excellent Wilfrid Laurier scholar. Um, this was a much closer election than most people think. It, it, if you look at the seat totals, yes, the Conservatives sort of dominate the Liberals, but if you if you look more into like the vote totals, it's much closer to a 48, 49, 51, 52 affair. So Canada is pretty divided in terms of its uh, political sentiments. Canada exists as an anomaly. In the 19th century, the dominant political ideal is the theory of nationalism, right? The, the coming of the nation state. And this theory suggests that the state should be powerful, and the state must rest upon the nation. And the strength of the state results directly from the strength of the nation. And nation in the 19th century was an all-encompassing term. It meant shared culture, shared language, shared history, shared geography, shared traditions, 
um, shared ambitions. And when you're thinking about where the nation state emerged in, in Europe, Western Europe, it makes good sense in that context, in that geography coming out of the religious wars, um, the sort of the national rivalries that exist. So, so it makes sense to conceive of nation in that sense. Uh, but in Canada, we don't have those common or shared elements. We are a country that's founded on uh, two languages, two nationalities, two religions, and even at the time, they would have believed two races, French and English, let alone the position of the indigenous. So we've never been united, even in our foundations and our creation. So if if the the formula for a successful country says a strong nation is a must, well, Canadian statesmen and politicians and intellectuals who believe in the idea of Canada, they have to give Canadians an identity. They have to give Canadians a nation. They have to essentially create one out of nothing. This is what... Uh, the theorist Jean-Jacques Rousseau said, he was one of the forebearers of the theory of nationalism, he said, if a country doesn't have a nation, the first thing that it should do is, is, um, is to create one. So Canadian statesmen and politicians are trying to figure out a mode of identity that can be expressed to Canadians that, 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 and that they can accept and live as a means to legitimate this brand new country. And in the first 25 years, there are not many success stories in terms of identity. And there aren't many symbols. I, I guess this is where, I mean, this is what I find so, so exciting about your book is that you're, you're, you're making the sequence here. You're illustrating a sequence between the 1891 election, which was very divisive and played on a very um, defined idea of Canada, whether it becomes closely associated with the United States or whether it, as you say, stays with the old flag, the old policy, the old leader. McDonald wins in 1891, and not, not six months later, you have the Stanley Cup being offered as, what was it being offered as a national symbol, Jordan? I mean, did, did Lord Stanley actually have that ambition? So that's part of my argument, is that he had a lot of motivations to donate this cup. Like, there's the clear personal motivation. He loves ice hockey. He wants people to play it. He wants people, he wants it to spread. Uh, he wants to see the game grow. That's a clear motivation, and I don't, I don't, I don't offer a a rebuttal to that. My argument is that there are also political motivations, and the political motivation was to foment Canadian unity. And there are a bunch of intriguing reasons why, um, why that, why I made that argument. But yes, that's my, that's that's my, that's my, that's my position is that it, it partially was done to give Canadians a sense of identity and community. There's an intriguing line um, because he himself didn't personally donate the cup. He um, he had his aide-de-camp, his personal assistant, Lord Kilcorsi, uh, read out a statement at a banquet for the Rideau Rebels hockey team in March of 1892. And one of the stipulations that he put onto the cup was this idea of challenge. And he also mentioned the idea that it would be great if teams could play a home and home against each other. So the idea of the cup is to stimulate travel across the country. He himself was the very first governor general to traverse 
the entire country from East Coast to West Coast because the completion of the CPR happened in 1885, but his the predecessor, Lord, Land, Lord Lansdowne, actually never made it all the way out to the West Coast. So he's the first governor general to be uh, to be seen in in Vancouver in uh, British Columbia. Hence, you know, Stanley Park in Vancouver. This was a big deal when he showed up. Oh, yeah, of course, of course. Yes. He's the first one to travel across the expanse of the country. So he understands maybe more so than other governor generals. Wow, these people are really far apart. There's not there's nothing to connect them. And in his role as governor general, he's also seen that politics is not the solution. Domestic, domestically, he is the governor general that um, oversees uh, the Jesuits' estates affair, and he's the one that refuses to disallow the legislation in Quebec, which goes kind of against what you might assume his personal politics would be. He's not a big fan of the Catholic Church, um, but he also understands right that he has a role. Um, he has a particular role as governor general. And he, uh, once he makes this decision, right, this creates a fury in English-speaking Canada, specifically like Protestant and like Orange uh, Canada. And this is also a, a precursor of the Manitoba schools crisis that happens in uh, in eighteen ninety. So he think he sees this domestic fracture, and how are we going to bring these people together? He also sees that Canada doesn't have a place to internationally assert itself, so it can't proclaim independence or agency on the international sphere because they don't have um they don't have control of their own foreign relations they're still being dominated by westminster uh so what avenue then is there for canadians to come together one of his official roles as two of his official roles as governor general give us a hint as well that the donation is partially political and related to his role as governor general one is to foster and foment unity and the other is to celebrate canadian excellence and so there are some precedents that other uh, governor generals have done in terms of donating prizes or trying to stimulate particular elements uh in in culture uh, i think it was lords Landown, lord lansdown pardon me that um he founded the Royal Academy of Sciences and the Royal Academy of Arts, right, to stimulate Canadian um, research and Canadian uh, literature and those types of things. And Lord Stanley himself is a is a sporting man. Um, he loves he loves horse racing. He he loves hunting. Uh, so when he comes to Canada, he's already a sport loving person. Canadians are a sport-loving people. He falls in love with the country kind of because of the sports. He has a, a summer cottage on the Cascapedia River uh, in um, the Saguenay in Quebec, where he goes and 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 revels in the fishing. Um, there's some interesting artifacts that I was able to find related to the fishing that he did in Quebec. And, uh, and so he's this person who gravitates towards sport and... Intriguingly, Great Britain and the United States have already used sport as a way to demarcate national identity. The Great British have been using cricket as a stand-in for British culture ever since the late um, uh, 18th century. The Americans create baseball in the 1840s, and by the 1850s, it's already being talked about as, can as uh, pardon me, America's national pastime. Uh, and it's certainly after the conclusion of the American Civil War, it is a huge unifier in terms of, of uh, bringing the sections together. And so Canadians have a blueprint 
for a way to bring themselves into a community of common sentiment and interest. And it's through an indigenous sport, a sport that's created in Canada by Canadians that expresses what it's like to live in Canada and be a Canadian. So hockey is kind of that sport. Lord Stanley gives it the royal seal of approval, right? Because he represents the queen. And all of a sudden, within a few years, hockey is by far the most popular sport in Canada. It, it, it winter sport, I should say. Uh, and, and, and in particular, it's already being identified as a national symbol of pride and culture. If imitation, Jordan, is, a, is, is the ultimate form of flattery, um, he had imitators, Lord Stanley. The Earl of Minto will do the same for Lacrosse. The Earl Grey, the Governor General in the uh, early 20th century, uh, donates the cup for the Canadian Football Leagues. There'll be even more Governor General recognizing sport. Even for, for women's hockey in Canada, we have the Clarkson Cup, which is uh, which was donated by Adrian Clarkson. And that's in particular a reference to, 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 to Lord Stanley. The Vanier Cup for university football. Uh, the uh, Jean Sauvé Memorial Cup is awarded uh, for ringette. So uh, a cousin of hockey. So we have the Vanier Cup, the Sauvé Cup, and the Clarkson Cup uh, added to the, uh, the Minto Cup and the Grey Cup. And let's not forget the Lady Bing uh, Cup, which is awarded for the most uh, gentlemanly player in, in the National Hockey League. You're right. The, the idea here is that there's a lot more to the Stanley Cup than a piece of, of hardware. It actually, for you, enshrines a certain idea of Canada in Lord Stanley's mind in the early 1890s. Yes, absolutely. And it, it relates particularly to hockey's winter essence, because when we're talking about using a sport to demarcate a national identity, it, it has to be the right sport. It has to reflect values, experiences, behaviors, and attitudes, right? Cricket emerges out of the British aristocracy. It's a game played over a wide pitch over multiple days because it was the aristocrats who decided, we really like hitting, and we're basically just going to get all of our servants uh, to stand in the field. We're going to hire pitchers to come in, and we're going to hit for three days because that's what we enjoy. And so it, it, it emerged out of the field and the aristocracy and gave the British this kind of a, a um, oh, what's the word? It's, it, it's this adequate representation of the organized, genteel, but at that time, masculine ideal of a British, of a British officer, a British businessman, a British soldier. America with uh, baseball, America can't possibly except cricket. They're just much more of a rough, a dynamic, <laughs> right? Uh, a more violent, a more energetic, a more democratic, a more egalitarian country. It's also an urban, it's also urban, right? Baseball is an urban game. It comes out of directly out of New York City. So you can't play a three-day game on a beautifully manicured pitch. It's in a hurry. <laughs> Everything, Everything's by the clock in the, in the urban industrial <laughs> city, right? So exactly. Baseball and, and and it's funny that you mentioned that by the clock, but that's exactly why this is exactly why baseball exists outside of time because 
baseball was an escape from the from the rigors of the clock that dominated the every single facet of your life in the urban industrial environment of the 19th century clock in at work clock out at work catch the trolley on time right uh, and people who live in big cities they obviously know that time is the rhythm uh, that, that, that they're governed by um, and so baseball is this expression of anti-time that's why it's done in innings as opposed to governed by governed by a clock so it's this it's this hearkening back to the british field but it's expressed through american forms and with american sensibilities canada requires something different it requires something that reflects our settler experience the very first iteration of this was lacrosse right this was an a a a targeted project uh, George Beers, a Montreal dentist and lacrosse promoter and Canadian nationalist, started talking about lacrosse as the national sport of Canada on Jan on July 1st, 1867. The rules of lacrosse were published in the major newspapers of Canada, and he was already promoting the sport in uh, the fall of that year as the national game of Canada. Mm -hmm. And it represented Canada to him because it was an adequate mix of the indigenous sport of Bagataway, the traditional netted and ball, uh, netted stick and ball games of the, the indigenous tribes of the eastern coast of North America. Wild, untamed, tough. Suitably violent. <laughs> extraordinarily violent. Yeah. The, the 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 accounts of the indigenous games are are legendary. Legendary yes. in the, in their um representations of violence. But it can't be just wantonly unorganized like the like the indigenous games because it's canada is a british country Brit britain means organization genteelness um standardization standardization uh refinement so lacrosse is brought under control right it's standardized in terms of the pitch the people that are uh, how many players are on it the positions uh the time to play the game so it's this adequate mix of the wild and the civil which is the experience and the definition of Canada kind of at this time, right? It's this uninhabited, I mean, not uninhabited, but vast, harsh, unforgiving environment that's been tamed by British civilization. Now, lacrosse doesn't end up sticking as the national sport for, for multiple reasons, but I think romantically, one of the reasons is it just doesn't express the one common element shared by Canadians, except for people on the lower mainland in BC. Sorry, I don't really consider them true Canadians because of because of this. Because it's what 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 is the one shared common experience of Canadians? It's the winter. Ice. It's the ice. It's the cold. It's the snow. It's the stereotype, right? And. It shouldn't be surprising that George Beers was also one of the creators and the founders of the Montreal Winter Carnival, which was a huge international tourist draw in the 1880s to bring people to Canada and to disabuse them of the fact that we were just this inhospitable, cold and frozen tundra. But in fact, what Canadians do is we embrace the cold, we embrace the winter, and we play sports and we organize artistic displays and celebrations, and we 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 live in the winter. And this was actually quite successful, uh, very successful in in, in I guess uh, marketing Canada as this frozen uh, tundra. But this this also gives us a good um, a good view into what Lord Stanley would have seen at that very first Montreal Winter Carnival. You know, the date that we started this podcast off with. 
uh, is this grand celebration of the winter as as an essence of Canadiana. And I think that romantic link to the to the to the winter and the ice helps explain why why hockey just so easily glided into this position of Canada's national sport. Yes. What happens to Lord Stanley after after he leaves the country? So he leaves in uh, 1893. He never sees a Stanley Cup game, right? He never sees his cup awarded. He goes back and he becomes the, at the time, the 30th richest person in the world because he inherits... Um, uh, the estate at Knowsley, his his family's estate at, at Derby. So he becomes the 16th Earl of Derby, uh, one of the richest men in the world. Uh, he spends his final years uh, philanthropically, essentially. Um, he also revives the family's racing tradition. So he, he brings back stable horses uh, and competes in the very famous um, races in England. Um, and he's just a wealthy patron. One of the things that's intriguing is he just... He he gives money to a lot of causes, but he he is especially fond of giving money to athletic causes. Um, so there's a lot of information in the archives uh, that that detail him giving philanthropically to uh, to many sporting organizations um, in in his uh, in his area around Liverpool. One intriguing story comes from 1895 because the Stanley family, right? It's not just him that loves that loves the game, but his family. Uh, loves it and they're quite close with queen victoria <laughs> and one day in 1895 the it's cold enough that the ornamental waters at buckingham palace uh, freeze over so the stanley brothers are are there and they decide to organize a hockey game with the uh, queen victoria and there's like a royal party uh and i believe they play to a zero zero draw which they describe as completely proper um, so it's so it's interesting. They kind of spread their love of hockey in England as much as they, they can. Um, but Lord Stanley just retires to become this wealthy benefactor and patron of all of the philanthropic um, causes that, that he believes in um, sports. And, and another big one was um, animal cruelty. He was big on the prevention of animal cruelty. Jordan, I have to ask you the, the classic Champlain Society question. Uh, you made use of new sources for this book. Can you describe them? What what makes this book so original? I would say it's it's not necessarily that I was able to uncover new sources, but that I was able to combine a, a great deal of primary information that had not been collected together and analyzed together. So you'll be able to find books about Lord Stanley that use the same archival uh, information that I did. You'll be able to read political books about Canadian history that rely upon the same primary source uh, books, speeches. You'll be able to read uh, books about 19th century political thought that detail uh, and, and talk uh, from the same sources that I've used. But nobody has put them all together. And that's what makes my book unique. My my goal when I started this project was to force sport historians, political historians, and intellectual historians into the same room together because I, I, I see a tremendous amount of overlap between the three, and I've never seen anybody connect the two together, uh, let alone the three. So I would suggest in terms of sources, that is the, that is the, the, the unique quality of my book. It's the... It's the immense amount of primary sources that I have and the way that I've combined them to to provide this fresh new analysis. And I believe this fresh new um, 
meeting between different different types of historians who who generally don't want anything to do with each other. Do you see yourself as one of the new political historians in the way you've brought culture and politics together? In some way, I would suggest that's that's not inaccurate. Uh, because I do think that culture is an extraordinarily important uh, element when we're talking about politics. And certainly sport is one of the most influential forms of culture, especially in Canada, and especially as it relates to identity. But I don't think that I'm necessarily part of a, a new, the new school, uh, simply because I'm not, I'm not motivated by a cultural analysis, if that makes sense. I believe that the new school is more defined by a cultural analysis of political decisions and political events, whereas I'm more interested in a political explanation of cultural events, if that if that makes sense. No, I, I'm, I'm trying to situate you, for, again, for the benefit of our listeners, uh, because I find your book to be very fresh, and, and you brought together many different things. But I, I, before I let you go, though, I want you to tell me more about the archives the Stanley Archives in Liverpool. You, you do refer to them a great deal in your book. Uh, what do they tell us about uh, Frederick Stanley? They're amazing, those archives. Um, so there were two repositories in England where uh, Lord Stanley's documents are held. One is at the, the, the City Library in Liverpool, the other at uh, the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College in uh, Cambridge. And what I think what's interesting maybe for the listeners is how uh, different both of these archival experiences were. So Liverpool contains 32 unorganized, unmarked boxes of, of, of sources, uh, of, of materials. One box, you open it up, and it contains 5,000 letters, which date from the 1830s to the 1900s, and they are, there's no chance you, you can understand what's going on inside that box. It's not cataloged. It, it not cataloged at all. Even some of the boxes aren't cataloged as to what's in them. Now, juxtapose that with the Parker Library, where there's a detailed finding aid that gives you a topic description of every single letter that's in the holding. So it was two wildly different archival experiences. Um, when I was at Liverpool, uh, as a, you know, as a PhD student, you know, I only had so much money to spend over in England. So I, I considered what I did there to be smash and grab. I only wanted things that I knew were related to Canada. And there were four boxes that just related to his Canadian experiences. So I poured through those diligently and I left the 27 other boxes basically, uh, basically untouched. One, one of those boxes, this sort of goes to one of the stories I was talking about earlier, one of those boxes just contained cardboard cutouts of the fish that they caught uh, one summer in Quebec. And I'm, I'm not, not joking you, you'd pull these things out and it was a replica of we caught this 52 pound salmon on this date at this spot along the Cascapadia River. Uh, and so they, the fact that he brought those back and, and, and kept them shows, I think, a pretty interesting um love affair with fishing and Maybe sport. Maybe you've got an illustrated volume coming out of this <laughs> out of this box. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's pretty interesting. But so that gives you a sense of what it was like, but to pull out some of his things uh, at Liverpool, I, I didn't really get a chance to analyze it. When I was at Cambridge, I, I found what I would consider to be one of the big finds, one of the big pieces. Um, you know, my hope was to find some sort of a letter or correspondence where Lord Stanley says, 
I feel like I should donate a cup to help stimulate the creation of Canadian national identity. Well, that would have made my job quite easy, and the book probably could have been about 10, 10 pages long. Uh, so I didn't find I didn't find that. But what I did find was this detailed letter that he sent back. Uh, I believe it was either to the British Prime Minister or to the Colonial Secretary. I forget which one. And it was in 1891. And it's right around this time of this national uncertainty. And it's a, a letter that basically says, Canada is on the brink, right? Uh, you, you, We have to pay more attention to what's going on in Canada. We're either going to lose them, essentially, to the United States. They will be annexed. Um, or we have to figure out a way to keep them into the in the Brit in the British fold, and it's this clear moment where he elucidates the precise political debate that's going on. It's it's almost as if he 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 has an inside view into you know the debates between somebody like Goldman Smith versus somebody like George Parkin, right? These two wildly divergent characters at that time period who are pushing for drastically different visions of a Canadian future. And here he is, Lord Stanley, this this person who people mistakenly assume is unpolitical or who is unaware of the political complexities of this country. Here he is in a letter back to, I forget again, it's either the prime minister or the colonial secretary, where he's relating the precise dilemmas facing Canadian national identity. So this was a great moment for me when I found this, because this lets me know that a, he thinks he's thinking about this stuff. He knows about it. And he also is tying this to his aristocratic duty as the governor general. He knows he's got to do something about it. You know, as a as a politician, he's not one to proclaim his ideals or his visions because he's an aristocrat. And he believes that aristocrats serve in politics out of duty and not out of personal goals or aspirations. So this is one reason why it's difficult for us to get any political opinions from him, but it also shows that when we can pinpoint his private political opinions, we can trace their uh, we can trace that lineage to his public actions and see if they are congruent with the duties of the office. And as the governor general, it all just syncs up so nicely so that he can act on his personal pol politic uh, he can act on his personal politics while serving in his official duty and stimulating activity in 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 in, in a in a sport that he loves. He really was astute, wasn't he? I mean, the Stanley Cup is probably one of the things, one of the few things that really does uh, bring Canadians together. Not all Canadians, of course, but as I said at the outset, uh, a substantial uh, number of Canadians who, for a few weeks' time, actually think about the Stanley Cup and the national. You know the the winners of the National Hockey League, and uh, in many ways, uh, live each year a moment of unity. Absolutely, and I think his understanding that a cultural solution was the only thing that could bring Canadians together was also quite prescient, because we're still a country that's politically fragmented and divided amongst many different competing interests i mean just the just the sectional difference the regional difference in canada alone makes it very hard for us to come to any sort of a common political understanding but but the community of sentiment and interests that's something that can unify us and i think you see this most strikingly at the at the olympics this is the time when canadians become the most patriotic 
right? We wear the red and white. We wear the flag, or we 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 wear the we wear the the maple leaf. We wear we 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 brandish our flags with pride, and we all cheer for the same team. And it's I think every two years these are the great national celebrations of our country uh, otherwise we don't we don't have very much to bring us all together at the same time all pulling in the same direction well the only other example i would think of is the women's soccer team jordan <laughs> yeah thank you so much jordan for for taking the time to talk to me about your book thank you very much for hosting me it was a great pleasure to talk to you and i appreciate it speaking with Jordan Goldstein, the author of Canada's Holy Grail, Lord Stanley's Political Motivation to Donate the Stanley Cup, and it is published by the University of Toronto Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual membership makes everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. There's a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast. Please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no money from the government for its operations, and that always surprises people. And, and don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded as the Omicron virus is ruining our lives on January 11th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Music